Good evening. Trump pleads the fifth, a respite in inflation. Pelosi explains why she went to Taiwan, and the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party says his group is being targeted by COINTELPRO. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news in exile. Former President Donald Trump refused to answer questions today at a deposition by investigators for New York Attorney General Letitia James as part of a civil probe into the Trump Organization. Trump announced he'd invoked his Fifth Amendment right against making self-incriminating statements shortly after arriving at the court-ordered interview in New York City. I once asked, if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Now I know the answer to that question, Trump said in that furious statement. He claims James has a vendetta against him. The attorney general is focused on allegations Trump's family-run company improperly reported the value of its property for financial gain. Trump's deposition came two days after the FBI, in an unrelated criminal investigation, raided his home at the Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida. Judge Arthur Engerin noted that a jury in a civil case is allowed to draw a negative inference when a party to the case invokes that right against self-incrimination, that unlike in criminal cases. Falling prices for gas, airline tickets, and clothing gave Americans a little bit of relief last month, though overall inflation is still running at close to its highest level in 40 years. Consumer prices jumped 8.5% in July compared with a year earlier, down from a 9.1% increase in June. On a monthly basis, prices were unchanged from June to July, the first time that's happened after 25 months of increases. President Biden noted that technically there was no jump in inflation over the past month. Today, we received news that our economy had 0% inflation in the month of July. 0%. Here's what that means. While the price of some things go up, went up last month, the price of other things went down by the same amount. The result, zero inflation last month. But people are still hurting. But zero inflation last month. When you couple that with last week's booming jobs report of 528,000 jobs created last month and 3.5% unemployment, it underscores the kind of economy we've been building. We're seeing a stronger labor market where jobs are booming and Americans are working, and we're seeing some signs that inflation may be getting to moderate. Inflation has slowed in the recent past only to reaccelerate in subsequent months. And even if price increases continue to weaken, they're a long way from the Fed's 2% annual target. Rental cars led the decline, falling 9%, followed by airfare and hotel rooms. Gas fell from $5 a gallon to just over 4 bucks. And in more news from Washington, President Biden signed legislation today expanding federal health care services for millions of veterans who served at military bases where toxic smoke billowed from huge burn pits. In a speech today, Biden made his first direct link between his son Bo's fatal brain cancer and burn pits. Biden said, I was going to get this done, come hell or high water. And President Biden formally welcomed Finland and Sweden joining the NATO alliance yesterday as he signed the instrument of ratification. The statement delivers United States formal backing of the Nordic nations entering the Mutual Defense Pact, part of a reshaping of the European security posture after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin called on more nations to join the bandwagon. A few weeks ago at the Madrid summit, NATO leaders, including President Biden and President Levitz, recognized Russian aggression as the most significant and direct threat to the security of our allies and to, to peace and stability in Europe. President Putin thought that he could divide 
the NATO alliance with his aggression. But in fact, he achieved just the opposite. The NATO alliance is more, more united and stronger than ever before. And just yesterday, President Biden ratified Finland and Sweden's accession into the alliance. And we encourage our remaining NATO allies to conclude their own ratification processes quickly. And I look forward to working with Sweden and Finland as members of the most powerful defensive alliance in history. The Senate last week approved the two once-not-aligned nations joining the alliance in a rare 95-to-1 vote that Biden said shows the world that the United States of America can still do big things with a sense of political unity. Meanwhile, the war in Ukraine grinds on. At least one person was killed and several others were wounded as powerful explosions rocked a Russian air base in Crimea and sent towering clouds of smoke over the landscape in what may mark an escalation of the war in Ukraine. Russia's defense ministry denied the Black Sea port had been shelled, claiming munitions had blown up, but Ukrainian social networks speculated it was hit by Ukrainian-fired long-range missiles. If Ukrainian forces were in fact responsible for the blasts, it would be the first known major attack on a Russian military site on the Crimean Peninsula, which the Kremlin annexed in 2014. In national news, last week, FBI agents launched raids in three cities, a move reminiscent of COINTELPRO, the secret government program that targeted progressive activists in the 1960s and 70s. The agents came in the early morning hours without notice, using flashbang grenades. They smashed windows, sent in drones targeting the homes and offices of the U.S.-based African People's Socialist Party in St. Louis, Missouri, St. Petersburg, Florida, and Sacramento, California. The organization's chairman, Omali Yeshitela, spoke exclusively with the news today. He described the sudden invasion that occurred early in the morning. Out of the dark, this booming sound comes from a loudspeaker, the voice uh, demanding that the people who in the residence should come out with our hands up and nothing in our hands, and this is the FBI. Then these flashbang grenades began uh, going off outside the house, and I was to learn later that they had actually penetrated the rear of the house and flashbang grenades were going off there. And they continued yelling, come out of the house with your hands up, nothing in your hand. I asked my wife to remain while I went downstairs and to try and call and make contact, let people know we were being raided. I get downstairs to this narrow stairway. When I get to the bottom of the stair, open the door, parked in front of my house, this armored vehicle surrounded by camouflage, wearing flak jacket, wearing uh, people who claim to be FBI. Well, they had FBI uh, insignia on and bouncing off my chest were uh, the dots from laser targeting lasers from weapons on my chest, targeting lasers on my chest. I went downstairs. My wife soon followed. And when she came out the door, a drone zoomed past her head going up the stairwell into the house. And they were saying, come this way, come this way. I got outside. They zip-tied me, my hands behind the back. They put handcuffs on the back of my wife. They wanted us to sit on the curb, something that we didn't do. Then they said, you can sit in the back of the car. We don't want to sit in the back of your car. We don't want to sit on the curb. We don't want to be here. What is this about? 
They said, we have a search warrant for your property, your house. I said, why? What is the search warrant about? And he said that later today, this morning, there's going to be an indictment coming out of Tampa, Florida, for a Russian national. Uh, and should he ever come to the United States, he would, he would be arrested. And this indictment, this thing would be served on him. And that somehow your name is involved. Yeshitela added, it wasn't just his home that was targeted by the FBI. We live in a predominantly African community, but there's on the north St. Louis and uh, predominantly white side of the city on south St. Louis. We have a property, uh, an office building that we've got uh, for the uh, African People's Solidarity Committee that does, that's, does reparations work primarily in the white community here. And in something like 137 cities uh, throughout the United States and 30 states here. So that place was raided. Battering rams were used to knock the door in. Flashbang grenades were set off. The couple who lived upstairs in the apartment were detained, handcuffed uh, at gunpoint. At the same time, a house uh, that was occupied by two leaders of the Solidarity Movement was raided by the police. Bank doors knocked in, just as doors were knocked in at my house. And then simultaneously in St. Petersburg, Florida, at our office, FBI agents uh, raided the place, uh, used battering rams, knocked the doors in. We have a radio station there. They had uh, taken us off air for a while. They went in. They stole all kinds of devices, computers, and cell phones, and something like 40 years of archives that we have stored in that building from much of the history of, of our movement and the struggle that we've been involved in. The raids were announced by the Department of Justice in a separate news conference in St. Petersburg, Florida, as a result of the indictment of Russian citizen Alexander Ionov, who the U.S. government alleges funded and supported black organizations as part of a foreign malign influence campaign against the United States. Part of that influence are allegations Ivanov donated money to the African People's Socialist Party candidates in local elections. But Yeshitela says the party did nothing wrong. The notion that somehow we are responsible, for, even when they got Trump, they raided Mar-a-Lago in Florida, to say that we have something to do with undermining elections in this country when January 6th, mobs of white people scaling the, the walls at the Capitol, chasing the vice president through the hallways, occupying the office of the Nancy Pelosi and congresspersons hiding under the tables and running from it. And somehow they want to have a discussion about how the African People's Socialist Party and the Uhuru movement, we can't dignify that really as a legitimate kind of uh, discussion. And yet Shatila was especially angered by the implication that it would take Russian agents to tell black people in America that they're oppressed. I'm not going to act like I believe that it's real meaningful or serious that some Russian had to tell me this. Any legitimate discussion around this would have to use as a starting point the fact that black people, in terms of elections and electoral process, churches have been bombed, our children have been killed, people have been assassinated, and that black people have been working around these questions that the Russians supposedly, we're supposed to be so stupid, so uninformed. It's a whole colonial mentality that this notion would be based on that the Russians would have to tell us to do this, do that. It's absolutely insidious and it's, it's just not good. It's not even appropriate to give legitimacy to that kind of claim. We're going to have to fight this. I expect indictments we have to raise. And Yeshitila says he does have an affinity for Russia as well as other nations he says are supporting black Americans. I've been to Russia, I've been to South Africa, I've been to Namibia, 
I've been to Nicaragua. I've been a host of places around the world about trying to grow unity and solidarity with the struggle of black people to win our freedom. Yes, I've been to Russia. I make no bones about that and would have gone more times than I did go, not because I'm some agent of Russia any more than I'm an agent of the South African government or the French government because I've been to France. And the chairman was clear the war in Ukraine is the result of United States colonial meddling in the region. They've spent at least $60 billion dollars. They've armed forces in Ukraine. It's a tremendous, horrific war that's happening there. And we know that the United States was involved in the coup that overthrew an elected, talk about elections, overthrew an elected government in 2014, and that they have been working for ages now, uh, pushing up to the border of Russia. We know all of this stuff has happened. We're not surprised at the United States' posture. We also know that the United States has obviously defined two strategic interests in terms of having, as they define around the so-called national security in Russia and China, and Africa is one that they don't talk about in the same fashion, but Africa is one. And Yeshtila adds that it's progressive media outlets, like Pacifica Radio, that are crucial to getting out the word of government targeting of black activism. We are responding to it with this discussion that we're having with you, and hopefully this contributes to our ability to break out of the silo, uh, the information silo, the narrative that they have created to define who we are. We invite everybody, if you want to see us, come to St. Louis and come see yourselves what it is that we stand for. We call on people to also, even whether you believe in us philosophically or ideology, what our ideology, to be able to make a statement that you agree, that you believe that we have the right to be able to advocate and organize for the unification and liberation of African and African people globally. You don't have to believe in it, but if you believe in the American Constitution, if you believe in the Bill of Rights, of, or if you believe in just justice for human beings and the right for people to be able to stand up and say, I believe this and organize for it. They didn't arrest me for shooting anybody, stealing anything, or thinking that we might steal something. They arrested me for my political views, and they did it under the color of law. Chairman Omali Yeshatela of the African People's Socialist Party, he spoke exclusively with the News in Exiles, Paul DiRienzo. Closer to home, about a month before the first day of the new school year, police officials are still struggling to fill nearly 500 open school safety officer positions. Their jobs at Mayor Eric Adams, who spent 22 years in law enforcement and school and police officials say play an essential part in keeping children safe. But despite mass shootings at a school in Uvalde, Texas, and an increase in violent incidents in New York City schools, not everyone is on board with more cops and school buildings as the way to go. Nevertheless, Mayor Adams doubled down on his support today, and the school commissioner blamed, of all things, legal marijuana for the lack of candidates for the job. So our goal is, while others say remove school safety agents, no, I'm not with that. I believe we need to have a safe environment for our children with respectable school safety agents, and they're doing an unbelievable job in these schools. Uh, Chancellor Banks, you want to add anything to that? There are opportunities, not just with school safety, but in a whole host of different areas. But when the opportunity presents itself, we have to be ready. There were folks that we know who a job became available, they fit the credential, all the criteria, but they like to smoke weed. That's real talk. So all of a sudden now, the opportunity that was there right in front of you is not there for you. 
There are currently 4,451 employed school safety agents, or one for about every 230 students, compared to the number two school system, Los Angeles, where there are about one for every 1,800 students. And in more school news, in a temporary victory for the mayor, state appeals court has blocked last week's decision by a judge to invalidate New York City's education budget and call for a reconsideration between the mayor's office and the city council. The appellate division granted a stay after the Adams administration filed a formal complaint Tuesday, meaning the budget cuts are back in effect at least until a hearing at the end of August. The plaintiffs in the lawsuit, a group of parents and teachers, had argued that the city violated state education law when it passed the city budget without prior approval of the Panel for Educational Policy, a governing body that oversees the Department of Education. A member of the group that brought the suit is WBAI's Leonie Hamison. She says it's a matter of democracy and putting students first. We have a city council of whom 41 members out of 51 have expressed um, great um, distress and regret at having passed this education budget, which has huge cuts to schools. They say that they were deceived by the Department of Education, who told them that the cuts were minimal and that no teacher would lose their job and no important program would be eliminated. And that was clearly false, because as soon as these budgets came down on June 5th, principals, teachers, parents, everyone were alerted to the fact that they would have to excess teachers lose art and music programs, lose support staff, and class sizes would go up radically. All that was not known as clearly as it should have been to the city council because the Department of Education minimized the impact of these cuts. We believe that if the city council gets another chance to vote, they will not vote this budget through again. They will restore many of the cuts that were made. The lawsuit is being heard Thursday, August 4th at 10 a.m. at the state Supreme Court on 80 Center Street. At 9.30 in the morning, there's a rally first at Foley Square, just a block away. So we are urging parents, teachers, and others to come to the rally at 9.30, but then also come with us to the courtroom to hear the arguments before the judge. The city has appealed first to get rid of the temporary restraining order to the original judge and lost. Then they appealed to the appellate court and lost. And at the same time, they froze the budgets of schools and denied principal access to their schools, which did cause a lot of confusion and chaos, which is what they were claiming in court was caused instead by our lawsuit, which wasn't true. When they lost their appellate appeal to the appellate court, they unfroze the budgets again. But I imagine in court they'll be claiming more confusion and chaos. But what they haven't done in all the hundreds of pages that they've submitted in the original response and then their appeal is that they actually followed the law. They've never once argued that what they did complies with state law, which I think is very interesting. Is uh, Mayor Adams, has he ever been or does he remain a friend of students in the city? I differ from a lot of people who believe that he is a complete tool of the charter school industry. It is true that the charter school lobby 
put more money into his campaign than any other group and ran lots of ads for Eric Adams during the campaign that didn't mention the word charter schools because they know how controversial that is. So he is clearly a friend of the charter schools. I actually believe he wants to improve schools, public schools as well, but I don't think he's thinking straight. What we pointed out to the chancellor and others have pointed out to the mayor is that cutting the budget to schools will doom all those other initiatives because there's no way that teachers can properly screen for dyslexia or provide the right intervention when class sizes are going up. So I think he's being stubborn. I think he's being misled. I think he doesn't really understand what the impact of these cuts will be. He's trying to save as much money as he can for other purposes. But there's nothing more important than actually fully funding our schools, and he has failed in terms of what he's done with these budget cuts. WBAI's Leonie Hamison, a member of the group that brought the suit. Parents have dogged the mayor at public events in recent weeks, urging him to stop fighting the lawsuit and negotiate a deal with the city council to restore funding to schools. Several hundred teachers have already lost their jobs, and principals have warned of cuts to enrichment programs and increases in class size. And finally, the war between Texas and New York is escalating. Today, Mayor Adams threatened to campaign against Governor Greg Abbott of Texas this fall. The two have been at odds over migrants being sent to New York City from Texas by the governor. Adams has called Governor Abbott un-American. Since last week, Texas has been sending busloads of migrants to the city, making them the city's problem instead of the Lone Star states. I am going to do everything feasible to make sure Texans Uh, people of Texas realize how harmful he is to us globally. Uh, He's a global embarrassment uh, because this is not what we do as Americans. All of us, and I'm sure if he goes into his lineage, he came from somewhere. And if his ancestors were treated the way he's treating uh, these asylum seekers and migrants, then he would not be where he is right now. You know, we talk about homeless youth today. Uh, when I was at the shelter on, um, on Beffitt and Atlanta, Atlantic Avenue, uh, you know, the number of young people from El Salvador that was there was a large number. These are, if we don't get it right, these young people are going to turn into the homeless youth that we're talking about uh, today. Um, and when it comes down to uh, Donald Trump, you know, let, the, let those that are responsible uh, carry out their review, uh, and they're going to come to the determination. We have, we have so much we have to do to deal with the damage that was created during that administration, of, you know, from Supreme Court decisions to uh, how we tarnish our, tarnished our image across the globe. Uh, I, we need to focus on doing that. I think the final analysis is going to determine if there was anything improper done. Abbott is running this November for a third term against former Democratic Representative Beto O'Rourke, who also ran unsuccessfully for president in 2020. And that's the News in Exile from Wednesday, August 10, 2022. The news is produced, written, and directed by WBAI News Director in Exile, Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.